Good evening, ABC College. Hope you're doing well on this Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in again to CORE, our theology and doctrine study that we're doing this summer. Hope you guys are having a great week and glad you're tuning in again. Uh, but if you've been keeping up with us, you know that we've been walking through all kinds of topics here in Christianity, and we are finally to Jesus, who is kind of a big deal uh, in Christianity. But so far, we've been talking about the Bible, about God, about us. And then last week, uh, we talked about Jesus, uh, specifically who he, who he is, uh, the person of Christ. And we talked about how he is both fully God and fully man, and he will be so forever. And that was the big idea from last week. Uh, but this week, we're going to continue this conversation uh, talking about not the person of Christ, but the work of Christ. So I'm looking forward to getting into this because this is also a huge component of what we believe uh, as Christians. And it has massive implications on everything else in our faith. And so we'll be coming back to many of the things that we talk about tonight uh, in weeks to come. But tonight, uh, we're going to talk about the work of Christ, and really I'm going to give you one specific kind of main point, uh, main idea that we'll look at, and then we'll unpack it uh, over the rest of our time together. All right, so here's, here's the main idea. It's this, is that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved on the cross and was resurrected to show his power over sin and death. So tonight we're talking about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. So let's talk about those things kind of one at a time. So the first is uh, the life of Jesus. You know, what do we mean when we say that Jesus lived uh, the life that we should have lived? Because this statement is something we say a lot at ABC, but really, what do we mean by that? Well, first off, in talking about the life and death of Jesus in our place, we're really talking about something called the atonement. You may have heard of that some uh, in theology before, but that's what we're talking about is Christ's life and death um, in our place. But let's first consider his life. Um, sometimes this gets called the active obedience of Jesus in our place, his representative obedience for us. Well, just consider this, because we know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins to forgive us of our sins. But think about this. If Jesus died just to earn forgiveness for our sin, then, yeah, our guilt would be removed. But if we're also supposed to be made righteous before God, then how, how do we receive that righteousness? Because if Christ only died to cleanse us and make us kind of a, a blank slate before God, then where is the positive element to that? You know, where is the way that we receive the righteousness? Well, it has to be from the righteousness of Jesus. Because if Jesus, for, if Jesus purchased forgiveness, well, the right standing with God still has to come from somewhere, and that comes from His perfect life in our place. And the, the simple truth of this is that Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience to God in order to earn that righteousness for us. Jesus obeyed during His time on earth, in His 33 years on earth. He obeyed the whole law of God. He never sinned. You know, even though He was tempted in the same ways that we're tempted, maybe not the exact same things, but in the, in the core, in the heart issue, He was tempted in the same way. But He never broke. So that the positive aspect of his personal uh, obedience in our place could be counted for us, that his obedience could be counted in our place. Consider Romans 5.19. Paul says this, For as by the one man, that being Adam, his disobedience, the many, us, were made sinners, so by the one man, Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You know, that means that if you're a Christian, God doesn't look at you with disapproval, with disappointment because of all your failures. 
But instead, God looks at you with perfect love and approval because when he looks at you, he doesn't see your life. He sees the perfect obedience of Christ. And he is proud of you. He loves you just as you are because he's not looking to your own behavior and obedience. He's, he's looking to Christ's performance for you to love you and to make you his child. So it's a beautiful thing. So that's the first part. It's kind of a short idea. But we see Jesus' perfect life in our place. But what about his death on the cross for us? We know in the church we're so used to saying that Jesus was crucified on the cross for our sins. But I think many times we forget or don't think about how awful crucifixion was during that time. You know, we literally made up a word to talk about crucifixion and to describe it. The word excruciating, it literally means from the cross. And the ancient Roman uh, philosopher Cicero, he actually said that decent Roman citizens at that time shouldn't even speak about the cross because it was too disgraceful of a subject for the ears of decent people. That the cross was a disgrace because of how gruesome it was. And the Bible in the New Testament, it doesn't go into much detail about Jesus' crucifixion, mainly because the original readers would have likely seen crucifixions. They knew exactly what happened. They didn't need it to be described for them. But for us today, I think it's really helpful, um, although not cheery, but very important for us to remember what the crucifixion involved in some way. You can go read lots of books about this that go into more detail. But briefly for us, consider a few details about crucifixion. You know, crucifixion, of course, involved nailing a person to a cross, which would have been a T-shaped wooden post. But they also did this in a public location for maximum embarrassment and shame. You know, imagine a bloody naked man nailed to a post in front of the local Walmart. You know, think about how gruesome and just awful that would be. That's how public they wanted the the embarrassment of someone being crucified to be. They, they wanted it to be public, and they wanted a crowd to be there to mock them and to jeer them. And the Romans specifically perfected crucifixion in their time. It had been around, around for a long time, but they perfected it, and they actually found you know, really new and creative ways to even make it m the most painful death that you could ever face uh, as a person. Uh, and Jesus himself, before he was crucified, we know that he was also flogged uh, with a whip, which included shards of glass, bone, and metal, to where by the time they were done, his back probably looked like he had been shot with a shotgun. Just that gruesome and torn up. And then after that, Jesus was forced to carry a heavy, or the heavy crossbar part of the cross, which probably weighed about 100 pounds. He was forced to carry that to his place of crucifixion. We know he couldn't carry it because of exhaustion. And so Simon, Serene, Simon of Serene had to carry it. But we also know that Jesus fell uh, during that time when he was exhausted. And that probably means that 100-pound uh, crossbar fell on him, and many physicians say, reading the Bible, that probably bruised Jesus' heart even at that time, which would have been catastrophic damage to his body even before he was crucified. But once he actually got to the cross and was crucified, they would have placed multiple 5- to 7-inch nails in his hands and in his feet, but really in his wrists and in his ankles, which actually are the most sensitive nerve endings in the human body. So Jesus would have literally been involuntarily twitching sometimes in pain on the cross. He was mocked by soldiers, by people. He had a sign put above his head that says, Hail King of the Jews. And we know he hung on the cross for around six hours, and he died likely of multiple things. He died of suffocation, of, of blood loss added to that, and also ultimately probably a heart attack from the way we see it described. 
And even as he was saying his final words on the cross, we know that a Roman soldier put a, a sponge soaked in vinegar on a pole and put it to his lips. But that likely wasn't an act of mercy. It was very likely an act of trying to make him be quiet because that sponge soaked in vinegar was probably the same sponge that had been being used to clean the local public restroom because vinegar was a disinfectant they used at the time. So that sponge is more like a toilet bowl scrubber that they, they, they tried to put up to his lips again to stop talking and just die there. So all of this, this awful scene that we see that Jesus endured for us makes it amazing that, that we as Christians celebrate the cross that we have crosses all around churches, that we wear cross necklaces, that the church throughout history has used the cross as its powerful symbol. Because to, that, to the people at that time, it would have been like you know, having an electric chair you know, hanging from your necklace. That it was something that, why would you celebrate that? It's gruesome. It's, it's ugly. Well, the reason we celebrate it is because it's on the cross that we find our salvation. So you know, while Jesus experienced more physical suffering for us than we'll probably ever imagine, even worse than that was the emotional and the spiritual suffering that he experienced on our behalf. Just think about a few ways. The first, he was bearing the weight of our sin for us. But not just our sin for us, but the fact that Jesus himself had never had to experience sin ever. He had never sinned. So he had never sinned, but yet all at once, he has the weight of the sins of the world come upon him. All that guilt all that shame. Imagine the guilt you feel when you sin, but that multiplied by millions, billions, you know, all at once, and you had never sinned. Imagine the emotional and spiritual pain that would bring. He also had the pain of abandonment. Uh, we know that Jesus, for all eternity, had known nothing but perfect union with his heavenly Father. Yet on the cross, Jesus experienced the separation and abandonment of God. You know, he, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, and you may have experienced in some way the pain of being abandoned by somebody that you love. And that's awful, right? But yet imagine the pain of being abandoned by the God that you have known and loved for all eternity. It's just really incomprehensible. But the third thing is also Jesus experienced the pain of experiencing the full wrath of God. You know, on the cross, Jesus took on the full wrath of God for the sins of anyone who would believe in him. And this... It's hard for us to really imagine what this would be like, but essentially, Jesus went through hell for us. He experienced hell on the cross for us. He didn't go to hell for us. That's a whole different conversation that we don't have time for tonight. But he experienced hell for us. He took on the torment and agony of hell on the cross in our place. And like we mentioned last week, that's why it's necessary for Jesus to be both fully God and fully man, since no human being could ever take on the full wrath of God and survive and for it ever to count in our place, which kind of ties this whole thing together. So the big question is, why did Jesus have to die for us? Why did he have to go to the cross? Well, there's a few reasons. Number one, there was the depth of our sin, that we were so broken and lost in our sin. We were so uh, separated from God, such enemies of God, there was no way on our own that we could save ourselves and bring ourselves back to God. Nothing we could do. But also there was the love of God that drove Jesus to the cross that God's love compelled him to send Christ to the cross. I mean, consider one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John three sixteen. right? For God so loved the world that God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But not only was it the love of God that made the cross necessary, it's also the justice of God that made it necessary for Jesus 
to go to the cross. You know, consider the fact that God is a holy and perfect and just God, and that if He doesn't punish sin, He can't be those things. He can't be holy, just, perfect, and righteous. Consider even what Paul says in Romans 3.25. He says this, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, we'll talk about this more in a minute, but a propitiation, it's a fun word, uh, is a sacrifice that takes away wrath. So Jesus' death on the cross took away God's wrath for us so that all that's left is love for us. But here in these verses in Romans 3, Paul is saying that, that God had been forgiving sins in the Old Testament through, putting, through people putting their faith in Him, but no penalty had really been paid for those sins yet. They had the sacrificial system, but we know that Hebrews tells us that really can't take away the guilt of sin. So God hadn't punished sin. So how can God be both holy and just and fair if He doesn't punish sin? Well, that's where the cross comes in, that Jesus took on the wrath of God for us on the cross. He died in our place so that God could be just and He could be the justifier. He could be fair, but yet He could show grace and mercy to us and we could be saved from the wrath of God. And this also gets called many times the penal substitution view of the atonement. You may have heard that phrase thrown around some before. But that phrase, penal substitution, sounds fancy, but all it means is this. Penal being that Christ bore our penalty, and substitution meaning that Christ was the substitute uh, for, our, uh, for us on the cross. And that's kind of the orthodox uh, belief that the church has had for thousands of years. And some people have a hard time with this idea of God being wrathful and punishing His Son. Uh, some would call it you know, divine child abuse or something like that. Uh, but we've kind of seen already how it was necessary and in God's plan and in God's character that He had to send Christ to the cross. You know, other theories have been proposed of the atonement. And there's some that say that Jesus dying on the cross was to redeem us from uh, you know, being owned by Satan and sin. Some would say that Christ on the cross was just a way of God showing His love for us or that Christ simply died as an example uh, in the way that we should sacrifice and serve other people. And there's, there's elements of truth in all those, uh, but the overall focus of the Bible and what the New Testament would teach is how Jesus died on the cross to take away uh, God's wrath for our sin. So even though it's hard, even though it may make us uncomfortable, the penal substitution theory of the atonement, it's a core doctrine of Christianity, and it's essential to the gospel. So let's not give it up because it makes us uncomfortable, but let's lean into what the Bible would teach us about it. But moving on, there's four words that the New Testament uses to describe the work that Christ has done for us. I think they give us a lot of insight into the atonement. Let me give these to you really quickly. The first is uh, sacrifice, that Christ was a sacrifice for us. Uh, God introduced the sacrificial system in the Old Testament to show us how our sin deserves death. But we know, according to Hebrews, that no animal sacrifice could take away sin, but the sacrificial system did show us that sin deserves death and it can be atoned for by the sacrifice of another. So Jesus then comes in as the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf, not as an animal, but as the Son of God dying for us. He's our sacrifice. 
Second is propitiation, like we talked about a minute ago, that big word. You know, it's a wrath-taking-away sacrifice that Jesus died to absorb God's wrath for us on the cross. The third word is reconciliation. Uh, this would be the idea that, that Christ was able to reconcile us back to God because of his work on the cross. To overcome that separation, we needed somebody, can be us, but we needed somebody to provide reconciliation, to be the bridge between us and God, to bring us back into fellowship with him. And Christ is that reconciliation for us. The fourth word is redemption. You know, as sinners, we're in bondage to sin and Satan. A sinner is controlled by sin and Satan, and they need to be set free from those things in their life. Otherwise, they're going to be hopelessly lost forever. We need to be redeemed from our sin by someone outside of ourselves. And this idea brings up the word ransom many times. You think redemption, you may think ransom. And Jesus uses that word in Mark 10, 45. You've heard this verse probably before, but Jesus said, For the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. But it gets tricky when you start thinking about what, how does the ransom work? Who's the ransom being paid to? Because it becomes really clear really quickly, Jesus is using that word ransom as an illustration, but not for a full explanation of the atonement. Because Jesus' death couldn't be a ransom paid to sin or Satan, because those things have no power to demand that payment, and Satan isn't the holy God that was offended by sin. And also, while Jesus' death was received by God as payment for our sin, it wasn't God that held us in bondage. It's sin and Satan. So you see that it's not a perfect picture, but Jesus is using that as an illustration of what he did or what he was willing to do on the cross. It's not meant to be, to be pressed too deep, but it's to show us that, his, that Christ's life and death was a payment to rescue us from sin and death to where they have no more ruling power in our life. All right, so that's the crucifixion. That's all we'll say for tonight. We could say a lot more. But let's now talk about Jesus' resurrection for just a minute. Uh, here's a, one thing to think about, first off. But what reasons can we even uh, believe in the resurrection? Like, how can we believe it happened? You know, it, did it really happen? What evidence do we have for it? Well, let me give you just a couple of quick uh, reasons for the resurrection. The first is this, is that Christ himself predicted his resurrection. Over and over again, actually three times, I know in the Gospel of Mark, we're going through that right now, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. He said he would rise again from the dead, and then he did. It's great evidence that it's true when he predicted it, and then it happened. Also, Christ made numerous appearances after he was resurrected to his followers. He appeared to the women outside the tomb. He appeared to the disciples, the 12 disciples, and ate with them to show he had a physical body and to let them touch him. Uh, he also appeared to over 500 other believers before he was ascended. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians. So there were many people at the time who had been eyewitness, uh, eyewitness accounts of Jesus being resurrected. Also, the disciples themselves never gave up on their faith. Think about it. If you're one of the disciples, you're going out and you're proclaiming that this Jesus is God, that he lived, died, and resurrected and ascended to God, to the Father you're proclaiming this gospel. Well, if that is made up and you maybe hallucinated some of this stuff, you know, or, or you, you know it's really not true, when you start being tortured and seeing your friends killed over this message, you're probably going to eventually admit that it, it isn't true, that you're, you know, maybe it's all in your head. 
but every one of the disciples stayed faithful to the end. You know, the vast majority were persecuted and killed for their faith. If this is something that they didn't really see and experience, if this isn't something they really believed was true, they would have given it up, but yet they didn't. And the church uh, over time has continued that suffering and persecution and endurance in this gospel. But the disciples themselves who saw Jesus, eyewitness accounts, never gave up. Also consider the church's astronomical growth, you know, that confirms the resurrection. You know, there's, there were 3,000 people that came to believe in Jesus in one day at Pentecost. Many of them had seen Jesus. So that says a lot about the reality of his resurrection. And also just consider the scope of world history, that people around the world have been transformed by maybe not meeting Jesus physically, but by you know, encountering him through the Holy Spirit, by hearing the gospel, that there is some kind of power that we can agree on in Christ, in the gospel, that confirms the reality that he really did die and resurrect and ascend to the Father. So lots of reasons you can read more about that too. But one last question, and we'll begin to wrap up. Why does the resurrection matter? Because I think we know most of the time in Christianity that yeah, Jesus, he died and he rose again from the dead. But, but why does that really matter to us in our faith? Let me give you a couple of reasons. Number one, the resurrection proved that Christ was divine. The fact that Christ died on the cross proved that he actually is God. He predicted he would do it, and then he did it, which shows a lot. Um, but he also proved his deity by fulfilling tons of prophecies that he would die and raise from the dead. So it all kind of fits together. Consider Romans 1.4 says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was declared to be the Son of God through his resurrection. It proves he was divine. Second, the resurrection proved Christ's power to forgive sins. Uh, consider 1 Corinthians 15 17. Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. By rising from the dead, Jesus proved his authority and his power to break the bonds of sin and to assure forgiveness and eternal life to anyone who accepts his free gift of salvation. Number three, the resurrection reveals Christ's power over death. Consider Romans 6 9. Because we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no, death no longer has dominion over him. The resurrection has secured our victory over death. It's, and Christ's victory over death has guaranteed our victory over death. Look at Ephesians 2, 6-7. It says, God has raised us, raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That if you're a Christian, you don't have to have any fear of death, that death has no power over you anymore. You may physically die, but you're, you're going to live on in eternal life and eternal glory forever. And you're, you're going to be resurrected in a new glorified body. We'll talk more about that in a minute and in a few weeks. But consider this quote I love from C.S. Lewis about this. It says that, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has been opened. That's what Jesus has done in his resurrection. Another reason this matters, the resurrection defeated God's enemy. You know, from the moment of his original rebellion on the day, until the day of the cross, 
the devil had been fighting to overthrow the kingdom of God. You know, and on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, when he died, Satan must have thought he had dealt the final blow against God. But that was a huge miscalculation because the cross ultimately was heaven's triumph, heaven's victory. And when Jesus arose from the dead, the power of sin and death was forever shattered on us. Because of the resurrection, Christians no longer need to fear Satan, sin, or death anymore. That death is just a doorway into resurrection life. Also, the resurrection means that the material world matters. And we'll land here tonight. What I mean by that? Well, the resurrection shows that God's plan to redeem us involves not just spiritual stuff, but it involves physical creation. You know, if God didn't care about the physical world, if it's all going to just burn up one day and be gone, then why would he have resurrected Jesus in a physical body? You know, Jesus would have just come back as like a spiritual being, you know, not, not a physical person. Even look at Romans 8.21, that Paul says that creation itself, the physical world, will be set free, when Christ comes again, from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It shows us that when Christ returns, he's going to restore all of creation to its original glory. Just like Jesus had a glorified body and has a glorified body when he was resurrected, just like we as believers will have a glorified physical body, that all of creation, all the physical world will be uh, restored and renewed to its original intent, maybe even, even better. That the, the story of how, you know, the, how the story of God ends is not in the world being burned up and believers being you know, taken off to some heaven somewhere far away where we play harps and, and sit on clouds. That's not how the story of God ends. You know, but instead, it's that Christ comes back to make all things new, to restore the world to its original glory even, even better, really. Consider Revelation 21. We see God creating a new heaven and a new earth, even a holy city, a new Jerusalem. And that's where God's people dwell with Him forever in a physical city, in a physical new heaven and new earth. So that means for us today that, that we can enjoy the world in, in many ways. Although we recognize the world has fallen, that it's broken, it's still needing to be redeemed. But it means that we can enjoy the world. also means that we can work toward good in the world, that we can work as Christians for the restoration of creation, the restoration of culture, that we can work for human flourishing in the world because God cares about the world. He cares about culture. He cares about the things going on today. The gospel doesn't just save our souls. The gospel really means that all, all things, all of creation is eventually going to be redeemed as well. So we can be, like Jesus says in, Lord, in the Sermon on the Mount, we can be about God's kingdom coming and His will being done on earth as it is, as it is in heaven. That we want to see His will be done on earth as it, as it is in heaven because one day it will be perfectly done that way. So we'll talk more about that even in the coming weeks about glorification and the, the end days and, and when Christ comes back. So be looking forward to that if you have uh, more questions. But for tonight, we'll wrap up there. But as usual, if you have any questions uh, from tonight, feel free to text the number here on the screen and we will uh, do our best to answer that question hopefully next week. Uh, but besides that, we hope you guys have a great week and we'll be seeing you next time.